The point of Christianity is not to go to heaven. The passages that we've heard read this morning from Fran and from Deidre. Isaiah chapter 11. Proverbs, uh, Revelation chapter 21. These passages of scripture point to a vision of what Christianity is all about. Life here on this earth in which human crookedness is straightened out and rough places are made plain and the foolish are made wise and the wise are humble. The whole point of Christianity is that the mountains will run with wine. Weeping will cease and people will go to sleep without weapons next to their bed. We'll work in peace at jobs that have meaning and our labor will bear fruit. Lambs will, lie, will lay down with lions because the lions will have been cured of their carnivorous appetites. And all nature will be fruitful and benign and filled with wonder upon wonder. Uh, one of my favorite of the early church theologians and pastors, his name was Irenaeus. He said, Christianity, the point of it, the goal of it, the heart of it is that there is coming a day. When vines shall grow, each having 10,000 branches, and in each branch 10,000 twigs, and in each true twig 10,000 shoots, and in each one of the shoots 10,000 clusters, and in on every one of the clusters 10,000 grapes, and every grape when pressed will give five and 20, 20 matrites of wine. That's about 3,500 gallons. And when any of the saints shall lay hold of a cluster, another cluster shall cry out, I am a better cluster. Take me. Bless the Lord through me. This is the goal of Christianity. This is where this thing is going. A time when this place will be filled with people who look to God and walk with God and lean toward God and delight in God. When the shouts of joy will well up from the mountains and from the valleys and from women in streets and from men on ships. The point of Christianity is not that saved souls will be snatched up into heaven away from this wicked earth. No, the great vision and promise that we see in the opening passages of Genesis and resonates throughout the history and sparkles on all the pages of the wisdom literature and resounds through the prophets and is driving the gospels and funds the epistles and shows up in technicolor on the pages of Revelation. This vision is a vision of a renewed universe of the re-webbing together of God and And humans and creation in a relationship of justice and fulfillment and delight. This is the goal of Christianity. And this is what the Old Testament describes in a single word. Shalom. Shalom. It's a Hebrew word. Nearly every Bible you buy here in America is going to translate it. How? Peace. Peace. In the New Testament, the Greek equivalent is Irene, we get our word Irenic from it, also translated peace in the New Testament. The problem is our English word peace is so thin. 
don't get me wrong. Shalom definitely means peace. It involves peace. We see this in the most beautifully evocative part of Isaiah chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can look there. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4. We're getting a picture of what this new heavens and this new earth will look like. Of what Christianity is all about. And notice what it says. The Lord shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Have you seen that amazing sculpture at the United Nations of the, of the man that's beating the sword into a plowshare? This is a part of shalom. Peace is a part of shalom. The goal of human existence is that we should dwell in relationships of peace. Our relationship with God at peace. Our relationship with one another. Peace. Our relationship with nature, peace. But notice how shalom goes beyond peace. That shalom is not merely the absence of hostilities. In fact, did you notice how peace is intertwined with justice? Isaiah 2 verse 4, he shall judge. Right there next to that passage that so many of us have heard that fills the art of high culture of beating swords in the plowshares is the notion of justice. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. The point of Christianity is that each person enjoys justice, enjoys his rights. There is no shalom without justice. If people are suffering from injustice, if they are being wronged, this is not true shalom. Justice consists in the well-being of the weak and the vulnerable and the lowly. If someone is not granted what they have a right to, if their claim on others is not acknowledged by those others, if others do not carry out their obligations to them, shalom is wounded. There is no shalom without justice. But justice is not everything. Shalom goes beyond justice. Justice can be grim. In shalom, there is joy. There is delight. A nation can be at peace with all its neighbors and yet be miserable in its poverty. And shalom is far more robust than peace and justice alone. The height of shalom, the, 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 the element in shalom that, that is just as important and cannot be left out is joy and delight. To dwell in shalom is to enjoy living in a right relationship with God. Shalom is to enjoy living with your fellow human beings. To, to have shalom is to enjoy life in your physical surroundings and even life with yourself. Jesus did not just forgive sins. He healed people. He gave them back the capacity for joy, for delight. The prophets didn't simply speak about peace and justice. They spoke about banquets with red, rich wine. Listen to Isaiah 25 verse 6. This intoxicating description, pun intended, of the new creation. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, 
of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Joy and and delight are an indispensable component of shalom. Now here is the goal of Christianity. The point of Christianity, shalom, is peace and justice and delight. Now I think a great way to capture all of these elements is with our word flourishing. In fact, I think that it wouldn't be bad. I think it would be an improvement in many of our Bibles if every time we came across this word peace, you X'd it out. It's it's too weak of a translation. It lets you off the hook. To be honest, it kind of bores you. Flourishing. Peace, justice, and delight. This is the goal of Christianity. And it's a comprehensive flourishing. It's not merely a spiritual flourishing. It's a spiritual and a material flourishing. It's a flourishing in my relationship with God. And a flourishing in my relationship with others. And a flourishing in my relationship with nature. And a flourishing in nature's relationship with nature. Remember, the lion lay down with the lamb. And a flourishing in my relationship with myself. Which I suspect for many people is the most difficult to achieve. Now, if you have a Bible, turn to this remarkable passage that Deidre read to us. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Here is the most famous of all the Shalom passages. Verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. I don't have time to do this for you, but the whole chapter is a chiasm. That means the outer, the outer parts of it match each other. And then the next part of it matches. And then the next part and the next part. And the centerpiece is the key. And just, we don't have time to do it, but the centerpiece is the role of the child. The child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Notice how it goes back out. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand at the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a remarkable image of shalom, flourishing, justice, peace, exquisite, Physical delight. But did you notice how this vision... I'm sorry, not did you. Fran read this. Did you notice how this vision began and ended? Did you notice the first verse and the very last verse? Verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a tree from his roots shall bear fruit. And notice the last verse. In that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for his peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. The shoot and the root. This is the one of whom the angels sang in celebration at his birth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. What? Peace. Irene. Justice. Delight. And Peace, it's that whole word. It's, it's the Greek version of shalom. 
That Jesus is the one. He is the envelope around the beautiful Shalom passage in Isaiah 11. What Jesus is doing is so much richer and thicker than our word for peace. It's justice. It's delight. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Shalom among those whom, with whom he's pleased. This is the Sar Shalom of Isaiah 9-6. The prince of peace. The prince of flourishing. The prince of justice. The prince of peace. This prince of shalom. This ruler is doing the work of what? God is doing the work of shalom in our world. This is what God is up to in our world. This is what Jesus is about. The angel said it at his birth. Paul over and over says the gospel of peace. I've been sent to you with the good news of peace. This is where God is moving the entire drama. This is the goal of Christianity. This is where God is directing the universe. Shalom is God's cause in the world. But it's not only God's cause. It is our calling. To be a Christian is to love and pursue What God loves and pursues. To be a Christian is to imitate Jesus. You see, shalom is more than a vision. It is the command for Christians. If you have a Bible, look at one page to the... uh, One book to the right of Isaiah, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29. God tells his people, his people who are being held captive in Babylon. God tells his people, build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the, scratch out your translation, maybe welfare, Maybe peace, seek the shalom, the justice, the peace, and the flourishing. Seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its shalom you will find your shalom. All who believe in Jesus are commanded to join with Jesus in the work of shalom. Shalom is both God's cause in this world and it is our calling as Christians. We are to work and pray and struggle, not in abstract, but for this city, for this place where we are living in exile. That is our calling. That is the word of God to us. And notice it's not in these abstract, vague religious principles. It's in the way we build our houses And have children and marry. It's in the way we embed ourselves in the warp and woof. You know what the community was trying to do in Jeremiah 29? They were trying to get out of Babylon and live in 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 a little commune outside of the city. Because the city was so wicked. And God said, you've misunderstood everything. I have called you into the city. To engage. To work for its shalom. Now, how are we going to do this? How are we going to work and pray and struggle for shalom? How is this going to be not only a vision of our future, but the task that we as individuals and we as a church really engage in? How? How are we going to respond to our society, what we've been seeing over the last three weeks? 
is that our relationship as a church and as individuals to our society cannot be a movement to protect ourselves from the destructive nature of the world. There is what we are called to here is a full engagement out of love in meeting the deepest, most desperate, concrete needs of our community. Now, when I began the sermon, I began by saying that the point of Christianity is not to go to heaven when you die. You see, if that is the goal of Christianity, turn your back on the world and head toward the goal. But if the goal of Christianity is this world reformed and renewed in the structures of our society, reestablished in shalomic ways, then turn your face toward the world. A full engagement. Out of love. Christianity is a profound turn toward the world. Isn't that what the incarnation was? Isn't that God himself not inviting us up into some platonic, etherealized, immaterial, unsubstantial existence? No, the incarnation is is God who is a spirit turning his face. And fully engaging. In face of all the threats. That ultimately cost him his life. What will it look like for us to take seriously. That the point of Christianity. The vision and task of Christianity. Is not getting out of jail free. What will it look like for us to recognize it as shalom. Well, there's many ways we could drill down at this point. I'm just going to point out two. Two implications for our church at this point in time. What it means to live for the glory of God and the good of this city. First of all, this means that your vocation, your work, your job matters. Because when, when else in your life are you that engaged with the world? Monday through Saturday matter because the world matters. Because society matters. Because our community matters and your work in our community is just as spiritual as what you are doing here this morning. If you mean by spiritual the things that God and his spirit is interested in. So the work as a Christian is to work in a way that fits within this framework. See, this is the key. Work matters And it gets its meaning within the framework of shalom. Does your occupation serve the common good? Is your occupation a part of the struggle and the work for peace, justice, delight, and beauty? Don't assume that it is. There are many jobs in our culture that are illegitimate God jobs within this framework. As Christians, we are to serve God not only in our job, but here's the big thing, through our job. This means that what we do for a living must either be made to serve the common good, or if that is not possible, then you need to quit. 
and get a new job. You have to make sure that your occupation is serving the common good. Don't just assume that it does. We live in a fallen, corrupted society. The structures of our social world are structures which in good measure do not serve the common good. So as you go to work, you have two options. Make your job serve the common good or quit your job. Now, second, since the cause of God and the calling of Christians is shalom. And shalom is a concrete concept, not an abstract notion. This means that the particularities of our city, of your neighborhood, that's where the action is at. It's the details that matter. What is specifically broken in your neighborhood? What in particular is out of joint with shalom in this city? Think in terms of the five dimensions of a relationship I mapped out. People with God, people with each other, people with nature, nature with nature, people with themselves. Think in terms of those five dimensions. Where is the brokenness in particular? What are the particular and actual details of a lack of shalom? And to help you, let me just call some of them out. Some of you live in the suburban neighborhoods of Harrisonburg, where there are no sidewalks. A sidewalkless neighborhood is an oxymoron. Now, I don't know how you're going to fix it, but the Christians better apply themselves to it. If shalom is the flourishing of one man with his neighbor... And I can't walk to your house. And the very architecture of my neighborhood keeps me inside my house. So that you don't know the names of the people on your street. That is broken. And spend the next 50 years of your life finding a way to fix it. And vote people into office who will think about that. Now it's not just the suburban neighborhoods. Our city downtown. There is no shalom without justice. And there is no shalom without beauty. There is no shalom without delight and joy. Shalom incorporates our delights in the physical world. Where in our com- but there are people in our community who are being tyrannized by ugly buildings. And ugly streets. Now there's been a tremendous renaissance as I've been told over the past 15 years or so. Uh, If you walk down Water Street, the work they're doing on the livery building is not just functional and about economic interest. It is beautiful. Have you seen the doors? You know who made them? Zeke made them. I'm so glad that Barry Kelly went for beauty. Because when people have to walk through a city that dulls the senses, that is not shalom. Think about old Amsterdam 
and old Paris. Why is it that we in modernity have, lo- modernity have lost the capacity that build cities that attract people to them merely to see them? May it be that in 50 years, people come to Harrisonburg not just for the mountains, but for the plazas and the edifice. You know, there was a day when we built city that, cities that had plazas where people engaged each other and they were surrounded by thin strips for transportation. And now we have cities where, where people can engage each other on thin strips as they are surrounded by dangerous beltways. We need architects and engineers and we need to vote. Now, I, look, why is it... Why is it that a choice has to be made between economic growth and the destruction of a healthy, delightful, beautiful environment? And when that choice has to be made, why does economic growth always win out? Because something is wrong with our model. It's because powerful economic interests are allowed to bend the city in the service of their own private economic interests. Now, I'm not saying that planning agencies and zoning commissions do any better. There's plenty of examples of that. There is no shalom without sensory delight. And one of the ways that the rich have hurt us here is that they've taken all of the elements of sensory delight and put them in their own private places called museums. See, what we've done in modernity is we've pushed beauty into these exclusive elitist enclaves and we've lost the beauty of a built environment, which is shalom. What about the particular ways in which the most vulnerable in our community are being wronged? Do you know who the most vulnerable in our community are? Thousands upon thousands of people who do not have a citizenship. Do you know that that is a particular issue in our community? Do you know that God deeply disciplined Israel? When Israel did not protect the interest of those who could not fight for their own interest. What are the particular ways in which people in our community are not treated according to their worth because of their lack of a piece of paper? There is no shalom without justice. Now these are not easy issues. They are complex. And you know why they're complex? Because they're concrete. It's easy when we sit around and talk about principles, but these are very complicated issues. These are very complex. We need wisdom. And let me just say one last thing about all of this. The New Testament is insufficient. If we want to have wisdom on shalom in the concrete particular details, we must recover the Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament that you learn particular rules that express the wisdom of God on how neighbor treats neighbor and city treats individuals. It's in the wisdom literature that so many of us read through Proverbs, read through Ecclesiastes, and we think that's not spiritual. It's about the mundane stuff of fighting and getting along. No, see, that's the problem. That's what we've got to recover. We've got to recover a robust view of the Old Testament because that is the source of our greatest wisdom on the concrete particular issues of justice and beauty. Now there are people in our community 
for whom the bonds of oppression are so tight that they cannot themselves work for a better society. Their lot falls on our shoulders. There are people in this room and you have the space of freedom that is wide. And to you I say, the word of the Lord and the cries of the people join in calling us to not just count our blessings as a church, but to do more than that. And to do more than to develop our inner spiritual life, our own personal morality, our own private prayer time with God. And I cannot say to the academics and the academically inclined, the word of the Lord and the cries of the people call us to do more than to develop good ideas and a biblical worldview. There is safety in that endeavor. No, the cry of the people and the command of God is for us to struggle with the particular issues in our day, with our neighborhoods, with our poor, with our streets, to struggle in particular ways for peace and justice and delight. And as we do this, we do this in the hope and expectation that the goal of our struggle will be granted to us. It will be granted to us in small victories amidst depressing defeats. Until that day when Christ shall return and the earth shall be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea.